And we will look at Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Galatians 3. Most of you are familiar, I think, with the famous allegory called The Pilgrim's Progress, written many years ago. It was really a classic of English literature, and uh, only in recent years has become an obscure text in, uh, in, to, for an educated person. But uh, if you've never read it, I would strongly encourage you. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is the story of a man who makes the journey from the city of destruction under the wrath of God to the celestial city, the place of God's blessing, the place of His presence. And along the way, near the beginning of his journey, we see him burdened. Really the way the story begins. This pilgrim has a great burden on his shoulders and it just weighs him down. It's this weight of sin and guilt that he carries around with him everywhere he goes. He got that weight of guilt and sin by reading in the good book. But that book also pointed him to the way that he should go and the evangelist pointed him to a place where he might get rid of his burden. Well, he began on that path, on that journey, to get rid of his burden of sin and guilt before God. And along the way, he came across a character called Mr. Worldly Wise Man. This is not the wisdom of God, but the wisdom of the world. Mr. Worldly Wise Man encouraged this pilgrim, if he really wanted to be rid of his burden, to go and meet another man who could take care of it for him. His name was Mr. Legality, Mr. Law. Or, if he wasn't available, he could visit his son, Mr. Civility. Mr. Legality, Mr. Civility, these men admonished the pilgrim to ascend a certain mountain where he might get rid of his burden and be the kind of person who would be respectable before men and acceptable to God. And they pointed him to a hill called Mount Sinai. And Bunyan writes in his story, So Christian, this pilgrim now, called Christian, he turned out of the way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. And behold, when he was now hard by the hill, the mountain of Sinai, it seemed so high, and also the side of it that was set next to the wayside did hang over so much that Christian was afraid to venture further, lest the hill should fall upon his head. Wherefore, There he stood still and knew not what to do. Also his burden now seemed heavier to him than while he was in his way. There also came flashes of fire out of the hill that made the Christian afraid that he should be burned. Here therefore he sweat and did quake for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. Finally, he is redirected in the grace of God and makes his way to 
another hill, a hill called Mount Calvary. And there at that hill, not doing anything, but simply looking up at a cross that was there upon that hill, he found that the straps that bound this burden to his shoulders were graciously rent and the burden slipped from his back and began to roll down that hill all the way down, down until it came into the darkness of a tomb, a sepulcher that was cut into the bottom of that hill and there was buried forever and ever. And Christian was, as it were, born again that day. The book of Galatians is about the gospel of being justified before God, being delivered from our burden of sin, being declared to be righteous in the sight of a holy God. And his argument is this, simply this, that the Christian gospel is that justification is by faith in Christ alone and not by works of the law. Not by the sheer merit of human obedience. Not by the performance of any religious ritual can a man be delivered from sin and made right before God, but rather through the cross of Jesus Christ alone. It's a beautiful story. It never gets old. It's fresh and new for every Christian burdened with the weight of his sin. And maybe you've come in here this morning already burdened because of the weight of your guilt this week. And that has pressed you down. And you know that in your strength, in yourself, you have no righteousness before before a holy God. Listen to me, friends. Every person in here who is truly a Christian feels that way in himself. It is only by looking outside of ourselves and to the Lord Jesus Christ that we are pronounced righteous in the sight of God. Not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of faith in Christ. Salvation comes through faith and not by works of the law. Through Christ, not through Moses. Through Calvary, not through Sinai. And Paul has argued for this gospel in this chapter. We're in Galatians chapter 3. Now he's arguing for this gospel against those who would distort it and pervert it. And he's argued for the gospel in two different ways already. He's argued, first of all, on the basis of their Christian experience, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And then he argued for this gospel on the basis of the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture itself, verses 6 through 14. And now, like any good preacher, he recognizes the value of a good illustration. It really helps to drive the point home, to clarify, to apply. And he draws this illustration from the realm of ordinary human endeavors. You see in verses 15 to 18 now, he argues from human example. And then that, in turn, leads to further discussion about the purpose of the law in the context of our salvation, our justification before God. So we're going to read, beginning in chapter 3, verse 18, and I'm going to read down through verse 29 because it really all fits together. I had a hard time 
the last couple of weeks really def- trying to decide how to split this up. I thought I'd try to do it all together, and that just became apparent that that would be impossible to really do justice to it for all of our sakes. So we're going to just really touch on the first half of it, more or less, and they just have to sort of keep on going next week. But I want to read it all together, beginning in verse 18 and down through the end of the chapter. Um, Sorry, verse 15. Did I say 18? Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither, there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. I want you to see this morning three things in this text. Really, we're going to see two things, and then we'll have to look into the third one next week, Lord willing. But I want you to see, first of all, the place of the law. The place of the law in the context of salvation history. Secondly, we're going to look at the purpose of the law. In fact, if you look at verse 19, you can see this is, my outline is just clearly 
following the text itself, you see the first word word in verse 19 is the word why. Why then the law? So we're going to talk about the purpose of the law. And then finally, the passing nature of the law, verses 23 and following. So the place of the law, the purpose of the law, and the passing nature of the law. This will be the way the text is unfolded, the way the Spirit inspired it for us over these next two weeks. Now, first of all then this morning, I want us to consider the place of the law in terms of our salvation before God. The place of the law. And Paul here gives a what he calls a human example, right? Verse, four, verse 15, a human example. Um, and it basically is this. You, you don't nullify one duly contracted agreement by entering into another. You don't do away with the terms of one by entering into a subsequent one. Let's just say uh, you had a rich uncle. Wouldn't it be nice if you had a rich uncle? You have a rich uncle, and he left you a large estate in his will, his last will and testament. He left you this house, no strings attached, he just gave it to you in his will. And then he died, and his will was duly read and recorded, established law. But before the lawyer will dispense to you the deed to the house, and all of the funds that are associated with it, He says, I'll make you a deal. If you go in and repaint the house and put some new flooring in and put a new roof on, then you can have the house. And we'd look at that guy and think that he's crazy. Or he's a crook, one of the two. You don't nullify the will by adding to it later after the fact. The gospel, likewise, was originally given on terms of faith. Genesis chapter 15, right? This is where Paul was a couple of weeks ago. We looked at this. This is the passage that he's anchored in. He anchors his doctrine of justification in Abraham's experience with God in Genesis 15. Abraham standing out there under the stars. God makes him a what? A promise, right? I will do this for you. What does a promise demand? Just nothing. You just believe it or you don't. And Abraham believed the promise. And on that basis, on the basis of his faith, in that promised blessing through Abraham's offspring, God declared him to be righteous. Abraham believed and he was declared right in the sight of a holy God. Not because of his own deeds or even any acts of obedience at that stage, really, but his faith, his faith in the promise of God. And friends, this really is, of course, exactly what God demands today from any of us in order to be righteous in his sight. God says in the gospel, I will do this for you. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will bless you and save you through Jesus Christ. That's the good news. God says to you, I will bless you and save you through Jesus Christ. And you either believe that promise, or you disbelieve it. You either receive the promise, 
or you reject it. You either hold on to Christ by faith, or you uh, you just try to be self-sufficient and make your own way through life and assume that you've got it figured out, and if there is a heaven, that you can make it there. The gospel is on terms of faith because it is designed to glorify Christ alone, not the worker, but the one who did all of the work perfectly, the Lord Jesus. Now, in verse 16, here in the text, if you look back at your Bible, Paul picks up on a theme that he began back in verses 7 to 9, and he's going to bring to its conclusion in the end of this chapter, verses 26 to 29, which we'll look at next week. But he brings that theme up. It's woven all the way through here, and you see it here in verse 16. And, and that is goes back to this question, who are the true descendants of Abraham? Who are the true descendants of Abraham? Because it was the descendants of Abraham that God promised to bless, right? I will bless you, and I will bless your offspring. So who are those people who are blessed? And here's, his, uh, here's part of the argument. This is the, this is the central part, and he's going to conclude next week. We'll see it. But this is the central hub of it, verse 16. Now, the promises were made, he says, speaking of the conversation of God with Abraham back there in Genesis 15, 17. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And that's probably a direct quote from those promises. It refers back to Genesis 13 and 17. God made the promise to Abraham, quote, and to your offspring. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then he says, he's going to clarify now, and really help us to understand how to, how to read the Bible. He says, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is whom? Who is Christ, right? And of course, the issue is whether this idea is singular or plural, offspring. It's one of those words that can go either way, right? It's like deer. Look out in the front yard, and when you were a little kid, you said, look, there's a lot of deers in the front yard, but there aren't deers, they're deer. There's one deer, or there are many deer, but there are deer, and uh, it's that kind of word that's a sort of a collective noun. It can include many, or it can refer to one. The question here really is this, what is the true significance of the promise to Abraham's seed? What's the true significance of that promise? And Paul says that ultimately, it is about Christ and Christ alone, right? That's what the promise is ultimately about. It's about Christ and Christ alone. And I say alone because he's saying it's singular. And of course, the truth is that not all of Abraham's descendants were blessed in this promise. Ishmael, not blessed, like Isaac is blessed. Not Esau, but Jacob. There are 12 tribes that descend from Jacob, but many of them are cut off in God's judgment. Ten of those tribes never even really return back to the land in mass. And even among those who are left, there is only really a remnant that are faithful to God. And ultimately, it comes down to only one. 
Only one who really trusts and obeys God perfectly, who is the offspring of Abraham. The one whose faith is complete. There is here in this text, in Galatians 3, an important biblical principle of interpretation. Say, I want to learn, I want to learn to really understand the Bible. All right. This is one important principle that you should hold on to. It is that the Bible should be interpreted Christologically. That is with Christ as the center of it. Christ as the ultimate end of it. Christ is the center of the Bible. Christ is the Son of Man. Remember at the beginning, God promised uh, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Who was the seed of the woman? Does that refer to all humanity is going to be um, hate snakes? Um, and be bothered by snakes. It's more than that. It's a lot more than that. It's about the singular seed, that son of man who would come. He's the son of man. He's the seed of the woman. He's the son, the singular son of David who sits on the throne of David for all eternity. He is the singular offspring of Abraham. And friends, here's the, here is the, a, a, just a huge, huge biblical truth. Every spiritual blessing, I mean every one, that comes to us comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way by which we are blessed from God. That He is the singular offspring through whom the blessings come. He is the only way to receive God's kindness. God just doesn't give kindness apart from His Son. He's not showing forgiveness or mercy or grace separate from Jesus Christ. Everything, every spiritual blessing that comes, comes through Jesus Christ. This is God's intent from the very beginning. This is God's purpose in salvation that He might glorify His Son in the manner in which human beings receive His grace. It is through Christ. He is the center of the Bible. Read the Bible with Christ in view as the ultimate fulfillment of all of the promises of God. All the promises we read in the New Testament find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. Read the Bible. Learn to read the Bible Christologically. Now, I said the context of this quotation and to your offspring, that God would give the blessing to Abraham and to his offspring. The context is from Genesis. This this very wording, and to your offspring, comes from Genesis 13 and Genesis 17. It's used both places there. And in both places, the promise is specifically focused on the land. Remember that God promised to Abraham a land, right? The land of promise, the land of blessing, the land of rest. The land that we call Israel, God promised to you, Abraham, and to your offspring. This was a special place where God would manifest His glorious presence. This was the one place on earth when God would make His presence known. When God would be with His people and He would dwell in their midst. They would set up there a holy place. They would have a temple. It would be like Eden before it like the Garden of Eden, where God and man dwelt together. 
before man by his sin was expelled from the garden. God would make a new Eden, as it were, in the middle of this desert. God would be there. And in fact, the very language of Eden and the imagery of Eden is recapitulated in and with regard to this promised land. This would be a new Eden where there would be no more separation from God. God and His people together forever. Amen? This is what's referred to down in verse 18. You see in verse 18 when he talks about the inheritance. You see how he's talking about the inheritance to Israel? That would have conjured up the promises of this land. 185 times the Old Testament speaks of the inheritance of the people of God. And in most of those references, the promise, the, the reference is to the land of promise. In fact, the root of the word inheritance is the word for a lot, you know, like casting lots, like we would say in modern days, throwing casting dice or pulling straws to, to see who gets what, to do gets to do what. And that literally is the way that they divided up that promised land. They cast lots for it. By the way, with this understanding then, to whom does the land of Israel, to whom does the land of Palestine belong? It's not the birthright of an unbelieving people. It belongs, as the Scripture says, to what? To the offspring. And who is that offspring? That offspring is Christ. Jesus Christ. In fact, the whole earth belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, to all who are truly united to Him. Jesus Himself said it in His own words, the meek shall inherit the earth. The heavens and the earth will be theirs. A new heavens and a new earth, regenerated, glorified, uh, made new. This will be the heritage, Revelation chapter 20, or the inheritance of all who believe. In other words, the promises about the land and the inheritance in the land pointed forward to something even greater, something grander, when the glory of Christ would not only, would not only start there in Jerusalem, but it would extend to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. And where God's people would inherit the new creation. Hebrews chapter 4 actually argues, the writer of Hebrews, you remember this probably, the writer of Hebrews argues that Joshua didn't give them rest in the promised land because he said David wrote later that they were still waiting for the rest. They were still waiting for the land of promise. And in his day, the day in which the writer of Hebrews wrote, God's people were still waiting to rest, uh, to enter into that land of rest. In spite of the fact that you read these words in the book of Joshua. Take a look. Joshua chapter 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel, look at this, all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one, 
of all their enemies had withstood them, and the Lord, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. Do you get the tension that I'm, that I'm trying to get you to feel here? Joshua says they received it. They got the land. They got their rest. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, they didn't. He says, it's something more than just that physical land and defeating their earthly enemies. It's, this is a, this is on the way to something that is envisioned which is much greater, much more beautiful. And, and this is just a sort of a, a guide to us. Again, in terms of how we read the Scriptures. The prophetic language of the Old Testament often works on two levels like this. There is a kind of a typical level or a literal level, a a prefiguring, really, a foreshadowing on a, on a physical level of something, something even grander. There are physical descendants of Abraham. There is a physical land, right? But there is, on the other hand, there is a fulfillment sense. There is an ultimate sense. There's an end goal sense of these prophetic statements. In other words, there's something that God has in mind as the real fulfillment, and he's giving them a sort of picture fulfillment in the meantime. And the picture fulfillment helps them understand the real fulfillment, but it's not the real thing. It might seem more real and concrete, but it's not ultimate. The reality, the fulfillment, the end goal is not these many physical descendants of Abraham, but the one singular offspring through whom all of God's blessings will come. It's not the physical land, but a kingdom that would grow to encompass the entire world and one one in which the curse would one day be miraculously lifted by God, be transformed and be the inheritance of God's people for all of the age to come. This is the way the scripture continues to read. And there are hints at this kind of understanding. Even as you read throughout the Old Testament, there are promises that are clearly pointing to something, something greater than, than, than the immediate. David's son in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Right? You remember the promise that God made to David? God will give to his descendant a rule, and that rule will be Listen to this, eternal. It'll be an everlasting kingdom. What kind of kingdom in the entire history of humanity has ever been everlasting? Right? Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. We're talking about something that is far greater than merely Solomon. This kingdom will be everlasting and be global. It will cover the entire earth. And it will cover the entire earth forever and ever. And this king... This descendant, the son of David, will build a house for David. Well, of course, in one sense, that happened, right? Solomon built a house. Built a house for God. David, remember, wanted to build it. He wasn't enabled by God. He collected the materials. Solomon built this great permanent temple for the people of God. But, of course, the ultimate promise wasn't about a physical temple, was it? 
It was about something more. And what do all of the promises find their center in? Jesus Christ. And so when he came on the scene, he said, tear down this measly temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Who's the temple, in other words? Where do God and man meet, in other words? And the answer, of course, is in Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. And now, by extension, he says that all who are united to him by faith, we are the temple of the living God. Living stones fitted into the temple, built on the foundation that is Jesus Christ for a dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit for all of eternity. This is the way the Bible reads like this. Now, having laid the groundwork then for his broader argument, and he's going to come, so verse 16 sort of, I mean, I'm just telling you now, you're going to have to let it sort of stand by itself for a minute, okay? Because we're really not going to get back to it, tying into it until the till next week. He starts it, he finishes it, and this is the link in the middle. But having laid that groundwork for his broader argument, he comes back in verse 17 now to make explicit the point of his human example up in verse 15. Here's the point. He says, this is what I mean. Did you like it when a preacher does that? He's giving you an illustration. After the illustration, you're still saying, not quite sure. (laughs) And then he says, okay, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, after this declaration that Abraham is just before God, the law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The promise of the land to Abraham and to his offspring that was given in Genesis 13 and chapter 17, well, what happened? They didn't get the land right away. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons grow into 12 families. They go away into Egypt. They eventually become slaves. They're there in Egypt for nearly 400 years, over 400 years. Finally, those 12 families who've now become their own tribes are delivered by God out of Egypt, and they make their way to Mount Sinai, where God gives them the law covenant there. And so Paul's argument is this, that the place of the law, that's what we're talking about, right? The place of the law is secondary to the promise. Law is secondary to promise. The promise which came first. The promise was received by faith alone. The blessing was assured to them. The law, which comes 430 years later, does not make void the promise by demanding obedience in order to earn the blessing. All of this is an argument from biblical history. right? The unfolding of biblical history from the storyline of the Bible. Friends, understand this. This is another principle on reading the Bible and understanding the way that the Bible works and how the Bible is to be interpreted. We're learning how to interpret the Bible from the inspired authors of the Bible here this morning. 
And what the inspired authors of the Bible teach us by way of example is that we should interpret the Bible in terms of the biblical storyline, the biblical history. The rabbis did not typically read Scripture like that in terms of the overall storyline. They would look and sort of mine the Old Testament text for isolated statements whose surface wording could be applied to a particular situation. Just go back and read. You can read some of the rabbinical sort of arguments, and they're almost, you know, to people who are used to reading the Bible like we are, they're almost sort of silly in the way they interpret the Bible. This is not the way that that kind of interpretation was done, and sadly, it's uh, it's maybe a little bit akin to the way some preachers interpret the Bible today. I just sort of kind of piecemeal grab a little text out of the Scripture and, and not worry really about how it fits into the overall structure of the Bible, just because it sort of seems to say something on the surface, and that'll preach, like as they say. Um, but once again, we have an illustration here of good biblical theology, good Bible interpretation. Bible interpretation is not only Christological, seeing Christ as the goal, the center of it all, but it is contextual. And of course, the broadest context is the unfolding narrative of the entire Bible. This is what we sometimes refer to, or sometimes refer to as redemptive historical interpretation of the Bible. Being sensitive to how a passage fits into the overall history of redemption, the unfolding plan for history, which God has ordained to glorify His Son in redemption taking note of the trajectory of what was revealed before and where what is revealed after and where this is going. All of this is what Paul is illustrating here in this text in front of us. And will really do you good to just sort of soak here in Galatians 3 in order to learn to read your Bible well. You shouldn't learn to read the Bible just by saying what makes sense to me, or to people that I know, learn to read the Bible by saying, how are these people reading the Bible? The inspired writers, how are they reading those scriptures that came before them? Now, the contrast here, are you still with me? (laughs) That was sort of by the way. Let's come back. The contrast here that Paul is making then is between promise, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, and law, which came later. Now, law has its place. Law is not the enemy. We read earlier, the law is holy and just and good. Amen? It is. The law is not the enemy. The law has its place, but its place is not as the basis of justification before God. For Abraham was justified by faith in the promise long before the giving of the law. And as Paul says now in verse 18, you take attention back to the text once again, he says, if the inheritance comes by the law, then it no longer comes by promise. But in fact, God gave it to Abraham by a promise. It's obvious, I think, from the way Paul's structuring the argument here, that law and promise are of a different nature from one another. Yes? 
He's because he says if it's by law, then it can't be by promise. They're, uh, are, they are of different of a different nature from one another. They operate on different principles: law and promise. Because law demands what? What does law demand? Law says you, thou, shalt or thou shalt. Law demands obedience. And in fact, we saw a couple of weeks ago, what does the law demand? It demands personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience if you are going to be justified in the sight of God on the basis of your keeping of the law. But the promise demands something different. The promise demands belief. It demands trust, acceptance, and faith. Nothing more and nothing less. The Christian gospel is this, that salvation and eternal life in the new creation comes by faith. That God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And He will do that through the offspring, the seed, the promised son. That's the Christian gospel. And it's as old as Abraham and older So I ask you today, are you looking to the Son? Or are you looking to yourself? Those are really the only two options when it comes to the way people think that they're going to justify themselves before God, or to be justified. They're either looking to themselves, to themselves, or they're looking to the Son of God. I ask you, where's your faith? What are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? What are you looking to? Now, all of this talk so negatively, it seems, about the law might ask us or might cause us to ask, um, so why is the law there then? <laughs> why did God give the law if, it is, if, it's, if it's not there to justify us? And this is what Paul deals with in 19 to 22, the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law. Notice again verse 19. Here's the key. Why then the law? You see why I'm I'm phrasing it this way. This is the purpose of the law. And here's his answer. And this is all we're really going to have time for today is just the beginning of this answer. He says it was added, the law was added because of transgressions. So why the law? Answer, because of transgressions. So my next question is, what does that mean? (laughs) The law was added because of transgressions. And there are several possibilities that might come to mind. One is that because of transgressions means, or could mean, that the law was given to deal with transgressions. The law came in to deal with transgressions. Because, of course, the law did, think about this now, the law of Moses that he gave on Mount Sinai, it did include provision for sacrifice, right? For atonement, for covering for sin. In one sense, then, the law actually reiterated the promise that had come before, that God would do for them what they could not do for themselves. 
So what the, that's what the sacrifice said, right? God would make this provision. for The whole priesthood gave you this. God is doing for you, through your priest, what you cannot do for yourself, which is to come into the presence of a holy God. So in one sense, I say, it dealt with transgression by pointing forward to Christ, who was the ultimate Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, whose blood covers sin. So maybe Paul is saying the law came in to deal with sin by pointing to Christ. But I think that's almost surely not what Paul has in mind, even though that's true, okay? That's not, I think, what Paul has in mind here because he has in view in this text a strong contrast between law and promise. He's not talking about how promise is is included in the law or that it's an element in the law that's reiterated in the law, but rather he's 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 just making it black and white right now for us, right? So that we're not confused about where our salvation really lies. So I don't think that is what he's talking about. So here's another possibility. When he says the law came in because of transgressions, he could mean in order to curb transgression. The law came in because there was so much sin, so God said, don't keep sinning. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And the law, of course, included not just commands, but it included threats. If you do this, then here's a punishment. Here's a just uh, recompense, right? There is a sort of a, a power in the law um, in, in one sense to sort of curb transgressions to some degree, right? And help to restrain evil by the threats of law breaking. Calvin called this the second use of the law. And it is a use or a function of the law in a society. It does curb the rampant evil that would be in place. Think about if if all of the evils that are against the law today were now no longer against the law, how much more evil would there be? Right? We're already seeing laws change in just this way. This could be what he means. But I think the language that's used in this context really argues for a different emphasis. Let me give you a third possibility, and I think this is right. When Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions, I think he means that the law was added in order to manifest or in order to multiply sin and transgression in order to make it known, to make it visible, to make it public, to make it obvious that we are incredibly sinful and in need of a Savior. And the key to this interpretation is the wording that continues in this text, and there's a couple places, but you can see it a little bit down in verse 22. In verse 22 where he says, now the Scripture still, I think in context, talking about the law, The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. It's kind of a negative view of the law, but ultimately for a good purpose. The law made everybody more of a sinner. It, Or maybe I should say it this way, it showed everybody how much of a sinner he was. And here's some other texts that say something similar. Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, right? Romans 7, 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Which doesn't mean that Paul wouldn't know that he's a sinner at all, 
But I think in the context, it means that he could sort of justify his sin in a way that he could no longer justify it once he was face to face with the fact that he clearly crossed the line. God's clearly said, don't do this, and he did it. It's like when you, when you have a kid who does something kind of naughty, but you never exactly told them not to do it, right? Maybe none of you ever had a kid like that. Um, that's okay. Uh, but you know the kid that's just like always on the edge and like, man, did I never, I never told them exactly not to do that, right? And they, they probably know they shouldn't have been doing it. That's why they hid in the closet. But I never told them not to do it. So I'm going to make a law now. Now you can't do that anymore, right? So I'm, I'm manifesting, I'm making that sinfulness more manifest. The law defines sin more explicitly and so manifested our innate rebellion against God. It's like taking a stick and poking it into a snake's nest. Make sure that there's no snakes around, right? You're not, you're poking the stick into the nest doesn't, is not the cause of the snake. The snake was there. You're just showing, you're just showing what was already hidden, hidden deep down inside. And Paul uses that kind of language, in fact, in Romans chapter 7. That sin was deep inside me, lying dormant, covered up by my own self-righteousness until I really began to be confronted with the law of God and then sin became apparent. I was not only a sinner, I was a transgressor. I was crossing the line, which is literally what transgression means. Now it's obvious, it's explicit to everyone. In other words, the function of the law here is not preventative, but provocative, actually. As Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says, the law came in to increase the trespass. Say, that doesn't sound like a good purpose of God, but it's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is that in the increase of our trespass, we might see our desperate situation, amen? And run to the Savior. The law has a way of exposing sin for what it really is, a violation of God's holy standard, and thus to make sinfulness into transgression. Romans chapter 5 argued, I read this earlier, that sin indeed was in the world before God gave the law. Were people not sinners before the law? No, of course, they were sinners. In fact, he argues that's why everybody died from Adam to Moses. Before Moses, before the law, people still died all the way back to Adam. Why? Death is the wages of what? So they were all sinners. But he says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. There's no public transgression. There's no clear violation of a rule. This is why Paul says, I was alive once without the law. Before I was really confronted with the law in my conscience, I was sort of felt like I was doing okay. I was, I was living. I was living the kind of life that, you know, was sort of pleasing to God. And it is, it is the function of the law to show us, to disabuse us of that fairy tale. That's the function of the law in this regard. In this, uh, in his view here. So he says in Romans chapter 7, but when the commandment came, when the law came in, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life for those who keep the commandment 
it proved to be what? Death to me. Why? Because sin seized the opportunity through the commandment and deceived me and killed me. Sin came alive in me. The law, I tell you this, the law has a way of really stirring up or awakening our innate rebellious spirit. You want to know the quickest way to get a child to do something that he's not supposed to do? You already know it, right? Tell him what? Tell him not to do it. Why is that? It's for this very reason that there is a rebellious spirit within humanity against God and against God's authorities that is manifest when the law comes to bear. It's not that giving wise instructions is wrong. There's nothing wrong with telling the kid what he should and shouldn't do, warning him of the dangers. There's nothing wrong with God's law. But rather, the law defines sin, it defines transgression, and exposes our sin by stirring up our innate rebellion against God. And in a person in whom God is really working, that causes him to cry out from his very soul in the words of the Apostle Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? And in that sense, and in that sense that it drives us to that place, the law is actually a good thing. Only then does the answer come, hey, look to Christ. Look to the Savior. He will redeem. He will save. He will atone. He bore our sins on the cross. He suffered so you might be set free. Look to Jesus. Be justified by faith alone. And I put it to before you this morning, have you ever seen your sin for what it is? Have you seen the ugliness of your sinful soul manifested in the transgression of the law of God? I ask you, how many transgressions have you added to your account through all these years? How great now stands your debt before the Almighty. How much of His judgment for your law-breaking stands over your head. And when you are without hope, when you are crushed under the weight of the law, That's when the gospel comes in all its sweetness and in all its goodness. Amen? That's when the Lord says that it is not to him that works, but to him that justifies the ungodly, that his faith in the offspring is counted for righteousness. The law justly condemns so that you will run to the gospel for your deliverance. Have you come to know 
that dual work of grace, the work of the law, and the work of the gospel, the work of law, and the work of promise, condemnation, in order to drive you to Christ for justification and salvation. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and woe, in, in agony and blood, who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. And never till my dying breath will I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But with a second look, he said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. Thus while my death thus while his death my sin displays for all the world to view such is the mystery of grace it seals my pardon too with pleasing grief and mournful joy my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy yet live by Him I kill. This is the work of law and of promise. Let us bow our heads and pray. Maybe you just need a time to pray right now to the Lord and to tell Him, Lord, I know if I've never known it before, I know today that I am a sinner. I am a transgressor. And in in your righteous judgment, I ought to be condemned. I am justly condemned. Oh God, but please have mercy on me and save me for the sake of Jesus Christ. I invite you, I encourage you to pray that prayer to the Lord right now. Call out to Him that He would save you for Jesus' sake. That you might be justified by faith in Christ. Stop any deluded attempt to justify yourself before God. You're guilty. If you'll really examine His law and all that it demands, that personal, perfect, perpetual obedience, you will find yourself wanting every time. But if you'll run to Jesus, the Lord promises that He will receive you in the name of His Son. By faith in Him, the offspring through whom the promises come, the blessings come, Run to Jesus.
Take a moment and just pray where you are and then we'll close.